Amen. We're going to be in Judges 19 today. So I'll give you a minute to turn there, but as you're flipping to Judges 19, just a fair heads up on this text, it is a pretty brutal read. So um, you've been warned on the front end. We're going to read not the whole chapter, but a good chunk of the chapter today um, through probably verse 28, and I'm going to start uh, in verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And there was there, and, and she was there for, for four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate, drank, and spent, and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning... And he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two men sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him, till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart, and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart... His father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned towards evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall rise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, And the servant said to his master, Come now, and let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites, and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah, or at Ramah. So they passed on, and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in, and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem to Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from where I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me, and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house, and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, and ate, and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, 
Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house, where her master was, until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house, with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. We're going to stop there uh, for at least our time tonight. Um, and uh, it's obviously a hard text, but um, it's in Scripture. It's important for us to understand why it's here and what it's doing. Uh, and if you want, uh, let's say, a, a title or a, a theme for this section of text in uh, verse 19, or sorry, chapter 19, these verses that we read, uh, probably an appropriate title would be the New Sodom. Uh, it's something that echoes uh, a story that you've already read in Scripture in uh, Genesis 19. If you um, are thinking about what the Israelites have access to in their Scripture, they have you know the first five books of the law. And in those books contain many stories, many strange stories. But one of them is in Genesis 18 and 19, which tells the story of Abraham and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels and the destruction of that city. And as you're reading uh, chapter 19 of Judges, you'll notice... Um, the author mirrors or tells this story in a way that would bring to mind that story. And so if nothing else, I hope at least at this point in the book of Judges, you're developing an appreciation for the author of Judges and his kind of masterful storytelling. Because one of the things he's doing is he's telling a really difficult story, but he's framing it in such a way where if you're an Israelite, if you're someone who's familiar with uh, Genesis 18 and 19, you're not reading the story and thinking, um, well, is this a good presentation of things? Is it a bad presentation of things? Is this something that should be done? Uh, because it mirrors so closely Sodom and Gomorrah, you know that this is something that ought not to be done because in the text of Sodom and Gomorrah, what happens is God raises his wrath and judgment against the cities for the wickedness that they, that they commit. And so as we look at this text, that's something to keep in mind. He's already framed the entire narrative in such a way that we don't take it as something that is up for debate. He's framing it in a very negative light just by how he tells the story. Now, that being said, we're going to get to the kind of harder parts of this, and, and actually we're going to be flipping to Genesis 18, 19 as well. Um, but we got to get kind of into the thrust of the text first. So the first thing that you notice uh, is we're once again introduced to a Levite. That's in uh, the opening verse of chapter 19. And this is not the same Levite that we saw in chapter 17, 18, different Levite. But the Levites are the kind of main character that bind these stories together that close out uh, the book of Judges. So we've already had uh, judges that are kind of the main characters in the other parts of the book of Judges. And here it's Levites that kind of bring up the rear. And so this is some other Levite, not the one that we met uh, last time. And he's got his own problems. Uh, for one, uh, notice it says in verse 1 that he has for himself a concubine. Now, this is... Uh, something that's really not common in the West. It's, it's kind of strange for us. Um, 
It's essentially someone who's not quite a wife of the Levite, uh, but there is some kind of monogamous relationship between the Levite and this woman. It's not clear whether he's, she is the only woman that this Levite is engaged with, because sometimes someone can have a wife and multiple concubines. Um, sometimes you'll see Israelites who have multiple wives and multiple concubines. Um, what, what this means is she's, she, she has to remain faithful to him, but, uh, and, and you notice this in the story, he doesn't really treat her with kind of that same dignity or that same respect. And that kind of comes out, at least in this relationship. And that's something, uh, if you know anything about the Levites, they're supposed to be the people who kind of set the pace for God's law, know God's law, and teach it to the people. And so for a Levite to have a concubine, you can already imagine how much has shifted in his ability to even, you know, teach other Israelites about what is actually true about uh, male-female relationships and how they're supposed to honor uh, the women in Israel. So they're already, right off the bat, introducing us to a Levite who is painted in a negative light for having a concubine. And then the other thing we're told is that this concubine uh, was unfaithful to him. This is similar language as is used in the opening chapters of Hosea, where Hosea's wife, Gomer, is unfaithful to him and she leaves him. Uh, it likely has a connotation that she either prostituted herself out or, or left him and was unfaithful to him. And then she flees his care and goes back to her father-in-law, or her father, um, his father-in-law. And so you kind of have two kinds of brokenness going on in the story. The Levite has a broken relationship with this woman. Uh, this woman has a broken relationship with the Levite, and she, uh, she's kind of seeking uh, other means of satisfaction, uh, either other means of employment. Um, she's prostituting herself out or something to that effect. Um, and then you're introduced to this strange character, the, the father of the woman, um, or the father-in-law of the Levite. And, and this is where the text shifts and kind of paints them more like a married couple. But they've already told us it's a concubine, so they're just highlighting that it is some kind of a monogamous relationship that's going on. And essentially, there's this, there's this strange thing that happens where the father-in-law sees the Levite, he hosts the Levite, he's very hospitable towards him, and, uh, and he's essentially kind of constantly urging the Levite to stay and to essentially eat, drink, and be merry. Um, and it's, it's kind of unclear exactly what the father-in-law figure is doing because, uh, you know, is he, is he a good character? Is he a bad character? Um, if you're asking those kinds of questions in Judges 19, you're going to be disappointed there are no good characters in this chapter. Um, but you see this father-in-law who's, who's hosting. He, you know, he's, he's throwing basically a constant party. He clearly has a lot of wealth. He can safeguard the woman. He can safeguard this Levite. And essentially, he's trying to get him to stay permanently, it looks like. Um, and this is the first part, this section of the hospitality of the father-in-law, is the first part that brings to mind or echoes a little bit uh, Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is keep your finger here in Judges and also flip over to Genesis 18 and 19 because you're going to see how closely these stories actually mirror one another. Let me tell you what this does not mean, just as a footnote. This does not mean that the author of Judges is parroting something that was, early, that was earlier and making up a story. He's simply telling this story in a way that brings to mind another story. Okay? So, anyway, Judges uh, 19, we saw the father-in-law hosting. Uh, Genesis 18, uh, I'm just going to read a couple of verses that kind of bring the same thing to light. Uh, this is Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent of the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and, ha and that after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent 
to Sarah and said, Quick, three Sarahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds of milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So it's already bringing to mind uh, Abraham being a good host to God and the angelic visitors. Uh, And then here you have uh, in Judges 19, the father-in-law being a good host to both the Levite and his concubine. Now it's, it's a dim echo, but it becomes obvious that this is an echo as the story kind of progresses. Because the next thing that we see is um, the Levite now is going to decide to go. He's not going to stay anymore. Him and his concubine and his kind of whole host of servants and, and camels or uh, of donkeys, um, they're going to leave and they're going to travel back home. Uh, and where they, where they are traveling is this city, Gibeah, which they don't yet know is not a good place to go, but they're going to travel there. And it's the same thing that you see um, with, uh, with the angels. When they leave Abraham's presence after Abraham has been a host to them, They actually leave and go towards Sodom. The angels are going to enter the city of Sodom and they're going to essentially test the hospitality um, of that city. And so uh, this is, you know, there's a little bit of break in the telling. Genesis 18, the rest of it is about Abraham essentially uh, getting a promise from God about a son uh, and also uh, essentially pleading on behalf of Sodom with God. So that kind of breaks the pattern of of the text. Um, But then you have uh, this interesting... uh, text in at least chapter 19 verse 1 of Genesis and it says then the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom and when Lot saw them he arose to meet them bowed himself with his face to the earth and said my lord please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet then you may rise up early and go on your way now notice that language same language that's used in Genesis 19 here of the hosting right so Lot is in some way echoing the hosting of uh, the, the father-in-law. So there's, there's kind of this common bloodline so far. Then you see, uh, this is back in Judges 19, um, that uh, as the Levite and his concubine are going through uh, the town, they're traveling, they decide to forego going to Jebus or Jebus, um, which is later called Jerusalem, but right now it's not under Israel control. Uh, they go, we're not going to stay there. It's not safe because it's not Israelite territory. These are foreigners. We can't trust them. Instead, we're going to go past the city and we're going to go to Gibeah, where we know Israelites live, because it will probably be safer for us there. Now, that's strange considering how the events unfold, because it's actually, they're in more danger in Gibeah than they would have been really anywhere else. And so, nevertheless, they pass through, they go to Gibeah, and notice the same language. Uh, this is in uh, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 19, verse 15. Uh, it's right at the end of the verse. And he, the Levite, he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into the house to spend the night. This is the same thing that the angels say in Genesis 19. And when they're talking to Lot, they say, they respond to him when he says, then you may rise up early, go on your way. This is in verse 2 at the close of it. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. Now this is verse 3 of Genesis 19. But he, this is Lot, pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now this pattern is mirrored uh, by the old man, who's not from Gibeah, he's from outside, but he, he is sojourning or living in Gibeah, Gibeah temporarily. And that whole uh, thing unfolds in Judges 19 from verse 16 all the way down to verse 21. Uh, and I, we already read that, but essentially he says, don't stay in the town square, come to my house, I will take care of you, I've got plenty of stuff for you. Um, and then verse 21 summarizes the, narr- the action. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. He washed their feet and ate and drank. So he's hosting them in the same way Lot is hosting the angels. 
And now where the, the paralleling of the events gets really, really close. And we're going to start in Judges again, Judges 19. Verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating the door. And they said to the old man, master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. That's the request of the men of the city. Genesis 19, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Verse 5. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Same request. Notice Lot's response, verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after them and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. It's Lot's pleading with the crowd. Um, not commenting on that yet, just, just drawing the parallels. And then uh, in verse 23 of Judges 19, you have the same exchange, right? The men are banging at the door. They've made the request. And the man, which is the host, the old man, the man who... Uh, the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Verse 24, notice he makes the same offer Lot does. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Notice right now how closely that language is paralleling. It's almost like the same narrative is being retold, right? Now, keep in mind, the difference is this is happening in Israel, an Israelite city from an Israelite tribe. That was happening in a city that was destined for destruction by God's decree, Sodom and Gomorrah. And that, so that should tell us that what the author thinks about these events as they unfold. It's wickedness all the way around. That's actually where those two stories kind of break pattern. So if you were to finish out Genesis 19, what you notice is what actually happens is the angels step in. They rescue the man from the crowd. They blind the crowd so that they can't actually find the door of the house. Then they get Lot and his family, his daughters, his wife, to safety. Um, and that's how Lot and his family escapes the city. There's a famous story about you know, Lot's wife turning around and, and looking as Sodom is destroyed. Um, but Lot and his daughters escape the city of Sodom. And then the angels, as soon as Lot is out, they, they destroy Sodom. And in, in this text, there, there's a difference, which is that there's no angelic or divine protection over what's happening right now. There's no angels to intervene in the story. So what instead happens is when the man makes the offer, the men do the same thing. They reject the offer. The crowd rejects the offer. Um, in verse 25, it says the men would not listen to him. So then the man, and this is now shifted, not the man, the old man. This is now the Levite, seizes his own concubine and throws her out to the crowd and essentially locks the door. Sees his concubine, and he let and he sent her out to them. Um, and then, you know, what the text already told us was going to happen does happen. Um, this is some of the most brutal, brutal language in all of Scripture. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And then as the morning appeared, the woman came, fell at the door of the man's house and where her master was until it was light. And then the uh, Levite comes out of the house. You know, he essentially wakes up. Um, he's getting ready to leave, and as he's getting ready to leave, he opens the door, sees that she's lying there, unresponsive. He, he commands her simply very callously to get up and let's get going. Uh, no really regard for her. Um, there's no answer, and as it turns out later, when he arrives to his house, which we'll get to next week, 
she's actually passed away. She's, she's died from this, this, uh, this attack. And so he, he essentially takes her home. And the rest of those events unfold kind of in sequence, which is why I stopped at verse 19, because that kind of un- unleashes the whole chain of events that happens. So just dwelling on, on these verses, uh, you might be saying, well, this is, there could be no good in this, right? There's, there's nothing in here um, that is, is fruitful or devotionally helpful. This is not the kind of passage you're going to uh, take a picture of and um, put on social media and, uh, with underlines and highlights and um, with good, rich truth. This is, this is not that kind of text. So then the question is, well, why don't we just ignore it? Why don't we just, you know, end Judges, you know, with Samson's story. We get to close the book. We can move on to something else. Why is this here? And so we've already looked at Judges 19. I pointed you back to Genesis 19 and how those are parallel accounts. And now I want to talk a little bit about the hope of this text. And that is in another chapter 19 at the end of the Bible, Revelation 19. So if you want to turn with me there to Revelation 19. This is the the hope, if you like, of the story. And I'm going to look at verse 11 of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations that he will rule and rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this text is the hope that is absent in Judges 19. Now, the reason I I point there is not just because it's a chapter 19 somewhere else in, in a book. Um, the thing that Judges 19 calls to mind for all of us is something that we're really not co- comfortable with usually talking about with God, which is uh, a sense of justice and vengeance that we feel like is fitting. Typically, in Western Christianity, we talk about God's love, his mercy. These are things we've, you know, as we've been going through Judges, we've discussed already. Um, and that's where we dominantly emphasize God's character. We, we emphasize it almost to such an extreme that we eliminate any category of justice or vengeance being a fitting response of God towards anything. And it's because in the West, we live in a relatively, relatively protected world. We don't really have a lot of war that's on our, in our country. Um, uh, whatever crimes happen seem to happen out there away from us. Uh, there's very little reason, generally speaking, not saying all the, way, all the way through, but generally speaking, we live in a very isolated society away from lots of pain and suffering hardship. That's not saying every single person, just broadly, right? And so we tend to emphasize attributes of God that, that mirror that. We cannot see a place for God's vengeance, his justice. Why can't everyone just love one another, forgive one another, get along? And so we emphasize that. And then we read a text like this. We, we no longer have a God or a kit that can deal with this kind of a heavy text. But the God of Scripture can deal with a heavy text like this because he's not just forgiving and loving. He's also vengeful and wrathful and if no one else will, you know, come to this woman's aid, God, God actually says he will, right? We actually see this elsewhere in the book of Genesis where 
Haggai is cast out, or sorry, Hagar is cast out uh, by Abraham and Sarah. And uh, an angel of the Lord comes and visits her. And she actually says, you're the God who sees me. You're the one who recognizes my pain, recognizes my distress. And that's a comfort for her. And this is, this is kind of who God is all the way through scripture. He's not only a loving God, a just God, a forgiving God, but he's also a vengeful, wrathful God who has a real punishment for sin. And I, I think, you know, as I said, if nothing else, you can appreciate at least the writing style of the author of Judges. Um, his writing style, at least in this, in this text, is kind of like one of those uh, pictures you might have seen in like a psychology class where you're supposed to look at the screen for like 30 seconds, kind of sear it into your eyes. You're supposed to look at a blank wall and blink a bunch of times and you'll see a different kind of image rendered, which is kind of all the negative colors of what you were just looking at. And so you have to look away from what you were just looking at, the kind of painful thing that doesn't make any sense. And when you look away and you blink rapidly and you see then in this looking away towards something else, you see the actual picture that the text was pointing to the whole time or the image was pointing to. And that's kind of what Judges 19 is like. It's You're looking here, there's an absence of justice, there's an absence of defending of, of this, this woman, there's an absence of any kind of morality, there's an absence of this man being a husband to his concubine, um, there's an absence of any, any kind of good. And then you look away from this text and you say, oh, the absence of all this good is actually what the text is telling us. And remember, it prefaces right at the beginning of Judges 19, in those days there's no king in Israel. That's the same preface we've always had. And the, we're supposed to imply that ending, right? And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the problem. But there, in these days there's no king in Israel, but we actually live in an era right now where there is a king, and not only just in Israel, but over, over all the universe sitting on the throne, and his promise to us is Revelation 19. He judges and he makes war over all wickedness. And that kind of brings us to like one final piece. And this is not to diminish what's going on here in Judges 19. Because the hope is still there. The, the justice and the hope is there. But the other thing uh, which is interesting is, you know, even reading this as Western readers so far removed, we recognize almost instantly, like pulls at our hearts, the wickedness of this text. The injustice of it all. The, you, you know, you're kind of crying out the whole time, like what is what is going on? And I would, I would like to submit to you that that is a vestige of, of God's law written on all of our hearts. That the reason we recognize this is bad is not because there's some common morality outside of Christianity, but it's because it's God's law and vestiges of God's law written on each and every human heart. We're not so callous, we're not so far gone, even in our depravity, that we can't recognize evil when we see it, gross evil. And then the question is, well, in Scripture... If, if we recognize this is evil by the standard of God's law, the question is, well, what else does God's law say is evil? And this is where we recognize our ability to discern justice, while sometimes it's accurate, often is, is miscalibrated. We sometimes look at things and we say, that's a wicked, that's a crime. Um, and then sometimes we look at what scripture says and we go, that can't possibly be evil. Um, but it's the same God, same good God, loving God who cares for his people that says, this is wicked and this thing over here is wicked, don't do it. And I think that challenges our morality because, you know, in this text, we're inclined to say, yes, injustice should be done. And then sometimes when we look at our own sin, we're more tempted to say, I don't really understand why this is such a big deal. Why can't God just, you know, get over it? And what's interesting about that Revelation 19 passage is it's not just that God's coming to judge people who commit sins that we think are particularly vile. He's actually coming to judge every sin that's in rebellion towards him from the sins that we think he should punish all the way down to the sins he's told us he's going to punish and we are not so sure that we're okay with that. He's going to punish all sin. Not just the ones that we are also on board against. And that's a, that's a problem, except for the fact that elsewhere in Scripture we're told that God not only punishes sin, but he also makes a way to escape the inevitable coming judgment, 
which no man will escape. We actually read this in Luke that um, everything which is now hidden or seems hidden will come to light. Everything will be made known on the day of judgment. And that's a promise from God. But the other promise that's present all all over scripture is if you seek the Lord while he may be found, you can confess your sins, he will forgive your sins and pardon you from all your wickedness. And so he's both offering mercy for those who need it, for the brokenhearted, the contrite, and justice for the one who needs it against the rebellious person who staunchly uh, marinates in their sin and never repents. And so, you know, when we're reading about this kind of wickedness, we have both things to cling on to, both a reflection of our own wickedness, our own deserving, uh, our own uh, posture of deserving the judgment, as well as the fact that God provides mercy even for the most wicked of sinners um, by, by means of the cross, by means of bloodshed on the cross. And so uh, it's not really that there's hope in Judges 19 so much as there's a huge absence of it. And in that vacuum, we see Christ. Um, and this is, again, not the total story, but at least as much as we can bite off tonight. And I think I've probably already gone a little bit too long. So we'll move on to discussion. Um, let me just close with a word of prayer before we do that. Father, we are thankful for your word. We particularly thank you for um, these difficult texts. They remind us of truths that we actually long in you, uh, justice and, and, and vengeance. Uh, Lord, we long for you to do what is right. Uh, even though our uh, sense of right and wrong is so, so off, um, we can at least acknowledge that there is a place and a time where justice ought to be done. And Lord, we thank you for even, even the grace in permitting that to stay alive within us. Uh, we pray for an increasing conformity to see the world as you see it, um, to long for justice to be done, um, and also to uh, long for repentance to be had for those who would seek your face. Lord, we ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen.